This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lemis Abdelati from the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Today, I'll be talking to Swati Srivastav about her book, Hybrid Sovereignty in World Politics, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. Swati, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. So I'm a recently tenured associate professor at Purdue University. (laughs) Very excited about that. Um, And I study political science and specifically international relations. Uh, But I've been had a a quite wide training in political theory as a minor. Um, I read a lot of history, uh, philosophy, uh, sociology, and I've taken classes in anthropology. And so I sometimes think of myself as a general pan-social scientist, Um, but I, of course, specialize in international relations. I think that really comes across in your book, this sort of wide reach uh, and this this sort of grasp of disparate literatures. Um, So before we dive in, um, how did you come to write this book, Hybrid Sovereignty and World Politics? So I started writing this book in my head uh, when I began my master's in international relations at the University of Chicago. And at the UFC, there's been, you know, a lot of great scholars that have come through that have helped us think about international politics um, and the system of states. But there's always been some reluctance to think about non-state actors as being important unless they influence state policy or state power. And when I was there, um, I encountered some work on capitalism, history of capitalism, and I found that really interesting. And I wondered why there were no more um, work on global capital, organized capital. We, we know a lot about organized labor, a lot about organized capital. And so I started um, going down the rabbit hole of learning more about organized capital. And that's how one of the cases of the book, the International Chamber of Commerce, came about. And the UFC back then um, had, you know, this sort of funding where they would send you to Paris in their, uh, in their you know, Paris center if you wanted to explore the archives there. And so I was able to benefit from this master's program that had a really good connection to an archive that I was interested in. And once I started learning more about the International Chamber of Commerce, I started realizing it was a very cool case. It's, it's a very old case, but doesn't get really uh, covered a lot. And from that initial um, deep dive into uh, archives, I realized there was something interesting here about state and non-state um, and that we don't need to show the ICC uh, the, uh, sort of change state power or change state policy, but maybe it told us something different about what it means to be a state. 
Um, so that's how the book first started, um, was in this master's context where I was trying to uh, go against the grain, um, but then also ended up using a lot of institutional resources and history to help develop what then became the book. It's fascinating. Um, <clears throat> okay, so diving right into the book, um, I'm going to ask you to explain your concepts of idealized sovereignty and lived sovereignty. Yeah, so that's how the book begins. Is uh, It's talking about these two modes of sovereignty. Um, and when we think about sovereignty, we generally imagine it as the sort of um, the authority to have the final say, right? To be supreme over everything else, to be sovereign, um, to be independent, autonomous. Those are all things that we think about. And in theories of sovereignty, there's been a lot of tension between how we even define this concept. People really don't like doing it. Uh, there's been a lot written about it. Um, and the way that I come at it is uh, we know that this is an idealized fiction. Uh, sovereignty as this idea of supreme authority only held by you know, one person or one institution um, is something that is not actually true in reality because lots of people are needed in order for sovereign power to happen. Um, and yet we need that idealized fiction in order for us to legitimate power. Um, you know, there are certain things that sovereigns can do that non-sovereigns cannot do. They can kill each other for, you know, uh, legal reasons. Uh, they can invade each other for ethical reasons. They can borrow money. They can print money. Um, they can establish new rights. Uh, they can do a lot of things. So there's a lot of privileges that come with being a sovereign. Um, and so because it has uh, this really important role to play in international politics, we need this sort of legal fiction that sovereignty is this absolute, indivisible, supreme authority that resides in um, one or like a group of people. Um, but that we know it might not always be how it, how it lives. And so for me, lived sovereignty was how sovereign competence or sovereign power is achieved uh, through divisible relations. And so people from across state and non-state spectrums, public and private, uh, together help perform sovereign functions. Um, this was true, you know, even in early modern period when the idea of supreme authority was created. Um, we had the parliament and we had the king and we had a king and parliament system in Britain. Uh, you know, there was a whole revolution in France and revolution in America that needed to figure out are the states in charge? Is the federal government in charge? Like who, like, uh, is it the people, is it the constitution? Like who is really in charge here? So these debates were happening about how something that's supposed to be indivisible and absolute is actually broken up and uh, carried out by a bunch of other institutions and people. Um, and so idealized sovereignty is that absolute supreme indivisible fiction uh, and lived sovereignty is the actual practices of sovereign power that are carried out by a lot more than um, just one or a group of people. And unlike, I think maybe other people in sovereignty discourse, sometimes they think about this as a hypocrisy or they think about this as one reason why we should just get rid of sovereignty because it's useless. Um, but I think actually the fact that we have this really enduring concept that has been around for so long um, I think it can only be around for so long because it actually lives differently um, over time. And it has this conceptual anchor of sovereignty, which is, it, which, which is the idealized form, 
but that anchor is not always anchored to the same thing. Um, it's just, it, it kind of moves and changes as, um, as, as the kind of lived forms change over time. And so that's why it's hybrid. It's both idealized and really important for international relations to have this, this, uh, this fiction, uh, but it also lives in more diverse forms than our imagination sometimes think. So in um, further developing uh, these notions, right, the book describes three ideal types of what you call public-private hybridity. Tell us about that. So I wanted to go into detail in how lived sovereignty actually happens. Um, so we know quite a lot about idealized sovereignty. People have talked about different types of regimes, different ways to legitimate sovereigns. Um, and we know a little bit less about the lived side. And so I decided to explore, you know, okay, given that sovereign power and sovereign competence is achieved uh, not just by one person or a group of people alone, but by diverse relations between public and private, um, what are those varieties of diverse relations? And so, um, and before I sort of go further, I just wanted to clarify what is at stake in talking about lived sovereignty is oftentimes we think if private actors are powerful, that they are somehow threatening the state. Um, so, you know, uh, people might remember sort of all these debates from globalization that were about, oh, is the state disappearing? Is it retreating? It's irrelevant. It's gone. All these, all these companies are taking over. And those debates are, of course, still here today. Um, and so we have this sometimes states versus markets view that, that thinks about who is in control. And so when private actors are supposed to be powerful, we think it's a zero-sum game and that public actors are going to lose out. Um, but I wanted to show that this is not just about the state losing and non-state actors winning, but again, what it means to be sovereign can only happen because of state-non-state collaboration. Um, that oftentimes when we think private power is impinging upon state sovereignty or impinging upon state um, competence, in reality, it helps sovereigns become uh, more powerful and endure longer. Um, but it doesn't mean that private actors don't matter. In fact, it means that they are integral to sovereign power, that without them, something called sovereignty would not exist. So that's sort of what's at stake between talking about public-private relations and why they matter. But there are different types of public-private relations, and I've noticed that um, people can interact with government um, performance in different ways. And so I talk about contractual relations, which are more formalized and publicized. So you can typically see um, who the government is contracting with and sort of what kind of functions they're doing. Um, and there are institutional relations where they are less formal and it's more about networks and sort of embedding yourself into uh, governance. Um, and then finally, there are shadow relations, which are not visible and are often denied if made public. Um, and so contractual, institutional, and shadow are the three types of public-private relations uh, that make up lived sovereignty. Um, so examples that I get from the intelligence community are we have, uh, we have some contractors that are on the books that people know. You know, we have um, uh, contractors for intelligence. Um, and then we also have um, institutional networks where people work for uh, companies or work for certain um, agencies, and then they go and work for the private sector and vice versa. So this sort of like idea of revolving door. 
um, to not necessarily formal contracts, but it's this informal networks uh, that are still pretty visible and you can trace them. Um, and then finally, you have shadow relations where people might be sort of running things behind the scenes uh, or you might have sort of hidden assets um, that you might not know about. And all three of these uh, types, I think, help us see that you have different types of stakes in, in public-private. Um, when you have contracts, you're able to publicly claim um, that you are doing something to help sovereign power, um, but you might end up still not, not taking, any, taking any responsibility if things go wrong. Um, in institutional relations, uh, you're benefiting from network ties and sort of structural effects. Um, and sometimes those can lead to having more elite or more exclusionary networks. Um, but those are also not oftentimes made public. Um, and in, in shadow relations, you know, you're really benefiting from things you don't want to do yourself and don't want others to know you are even possible of doing. Um, but of course, the negative side is that you are undermining trust if people find out that you're doing these things. So each of those have some specific um, uh, payoffs and trade-offs for sovereign power. Wonderful. So be, before we begin talking about your empirics in detail, um, how did you go about selecting cases and collecting data? Yeah, and so I knew that I wanted to focus on transnational, ostensibly private organizations. So these are global uh, organizations that are supposed to be non-state actors. Um, and I wanted them to also focus on different realms of international politics um, in violence, in markets, and rights. And so there's the idea of violence, markets, and rights is three sovereign domains, also kind of maps onto the subfields of international security, international political economy, and human rights, which are most common in my field. Um, which means that uh, typically people would just pick cases within one of those domains and compare them. So they might just do, okay, hyper sovereignty and security. And, you know, let's just compare our kinds of security relationships or political economy. But I wanted to um, explore, the, uh, explore the, the, the full breadth of relations because I think sovereign power impacts everything. And so um, it meant that I had to sort of get like many PhDs in each of my subfields, which usually, again, people specialize in just one. But I wanted to make sure that the cases spoke to more than just security or political economy or human rights. Um, and then within each of those domains, I was looking for cases that have had uh, either some um, longevity or some sort of intrinsic importance. And so in the case of International Chamber of Commerce, um, it was about longevity. It was a case that had been around for almost 100 years, uh, very important for international commerce, uh, but sort of understudied in that field. Um, in the case of Blackwater, it was a case that's not been around for that long, but it was a case that was really important to security relationships. And even though it was sort of covered in um, how we know about security, uh, people had oftentimes thought of Blackwater as challenging state power. So I wanted to present it as this deviant case. And then Amnesty International, of course, is um, a case that has both longevity and intrinsic importance for human rights. It's you know one of the only leading organizations that have been um, around for that long uh, that have maintained archives. And so data access was also a consideration. Um, so for, the, for three of the four cases, there was a lot of extensive archives. 
Um, and I picked the East India Company because it kind of did all three. It, it did violence and markets and rights, and it allowed me uh, access to over 250 years of data that helped sort of generate some of the theory and, um, and sort of the typology that we we're talking about. And so uh, I was a historically trained uh, scholar, and so it was important for me to have access to good data, which meant biasing towards larger organizations that have survived and kept really good records. Um, the Blackwater case was sort of unique in that. Um, but it, it, but even Blackwater had very extensive media coverage. And so I was able to build a corporate archive from its um, uh, news stories. And of course, there, you know, as I was writing my dissertation, there were all these leaks from the Blackwater, you know, documents and WikiLeaks. Uh, and I can talk a little bit later about, um, I struggled with, with whether or not I should use those materials. Um, but in any case, I wanted to pick large, uh, transnational private organizations that had survived some period of time, uh, so that had some good records, and that people would think about them as conventionally as challenging state sovereignty in some way. And I wanted to take those cases and turn them around and say, actually, no, they don't challenge state sovereignty. They, in fact, support it. And here's how. Wonderful. So let's begin with the East India Company. Can you tell us about your analysis there? Yeah, so the East India Company... Uh, I was surprised to learn about how long it survived. And so it was around from 1600 till about 1858. And, uh, you know, it started out as just this um, uh, company of adventurers, as they call themselves, going out there to seek fortune uh, in the East Indies, uh, which became mostly India for them. And uh, over time, because of the sort of long distance between um, England and India, they had to be delegated a lot of, of sovereign powers to make their own decisions. You couldn't wait eight months to figure out whether or not you have to start a war to keep your territory uh, to maintain your trade monopoly. And so they weren't the only ones at the time. There was, of course, the Dutch East India Company, the French had one, uh, the Portuguese had one before, but they were sort of on the decline. Um, and so all of these mercantile companies were given these sovereign privileges to conduct long seas um, commerce. Uh, and over time, I've you know the, the thing about East, the English East India Company was that it started asserting more and more independence from um, the government back home. So it was created out of royal charter. So it was sort of a public-private entity at birth because it could not survive without having a royal charter for a monopoly. Uh, because monopolies were illegal, so it needed sort of this, this like charter, um, which was basically uh, granting them an granting them an um, option. But it uses uh, mostly private financing. It used, uh, you know, private men who went out there and fought for them, um, and all the laws they uh, ended up doing were private. And so the company had this tense relationship um, every time they had to sort of. Um, they had to like think about their charter being up for renewal. Um, so around these charter renewal, they had negotiations about, oh, we need to have more sovereign privileges or now we need to all submit money and now we need to also collect taxes. And so over a period of 100 years, they started doing more and more sovereign things in order to maintain their monopoly. Um, and there was a really good book that came out in 2011 by Philip Stern called The Company State where he makes this argument that this was not just a company, it was a company state, it was this hybrid entity. 
Um, so I'm not the first one to make this argument, but I, after I read Stern's book, I thought, well, this has implications for international politics because if a company state is is emerging during the time of states, uh, what are they doing about it? Um, and so that was sort of my um, my initial question. And I found out that, you know, again, through this 100-year analysis of the East India Company, um, where I was able to basically access their daily uh, or sort of bi-weekly um, meeting minutes for over 100 years. Um, so, you know, imagine if you got access to sitting in on like the top executive meetings for Meta today, right? And you get access to all their emails and, and basically everything they're saying about their strategy. So that's, that's the kind of data we have on, on this company. And looking at that for over 100 years, I've noticed that they had different relations over time with the government, uh, starting with contractual, moving to institutional, ending with shadow, um, and that this really impacted how successful they were. But it also impacted how the government saw them. And so there's sort of two stories here. One is how this company became sovereign and how it, it started to think of itself as sovereign and that they have would have poured blood, sweat, and tears acquiring territory abroad. This is theirs by right, not by privilege. Like nobody gave it to them; they earned us. Um, you know this kind of mentality. Uh, but then that provoked a backlash from Parliament and the Crown because they were like, "What do you mean you're sovereign? Uh, what is you know? I'm I'm sorry. There's like a charter here that we are allowing you to exist." And so there were these big public debates that happened. Um, that was all about, is the company growing too big too quickly? Um, you know, they are doing all kinds of bad things in India. There's a famine that they could have prevented, they didn't. Um, so it became these debates about corporate responsibility, what is the role of the state, and why are we allowing this to happen in our name? Um, and eventually, you know, and there's also, of course, money involved because Parliament wanted more money and more kickbacks that they were getting. They started realizing that um, the annual payment they were being given was very low compared to the massive profits the company was generating. So it was not all just about, you know, um, corporate responsibility. Some of it was about just corruption. Um, but eventually there were more regulation that came down the pike and the company was sort of reined in with more oversight. But that took about 75 years. It wasn't just like they woke up when they decided, oh, yes, the company has to be held in check. And so there's this 100-year period where the company is growing, becomes dominant, starts asserting itself as sovereign, and then another 75-year period where, the, where there's this backlash, and then it's sort of reined in. And um, my book really looks at both of these contests and the role of public-private in basically thinking about sovereignty itself. Because at this time, uh, it's also the same time when states are starting to think of themselves as sovereign in very particular ways. Um, which they had not done before that. And in some ways, confronting the East India Company as this non-state sovereign rival helped them think about themselves as, oh, wait, we should maybe care about being more sovereign. So the next uh, step in your empirics moves to um, Blackwater. What do those findings look like? Yeah, so Blackwater is uh, definitely one of the most studied cases in the book. Um, and I started thinking about this as an example of what happens when you have contractual relations with a private entity that is conducting wars on your behalf. And there are war crimes that typically a government would be held responsible for, but it's not clear if private contractors are. 
and so the book starts with this massacre in Nisar Square in Baghdad um, and really grapples with how you hold a company responsible. And that, that, that massacre was important because it was publicly known. Um, there were you know, a lot of fatalities and it, it got massive news coverage. Um, and it was never really in question whether or not they did it. They did do it. It was just a matter of, uh, can we uh, find laws that hold them responsible for what they did? Um, and there was a lot of other, you know, back and forth that happened, which led to three separate trials and eventually a pardon from the Trump administration. And so this case stretched out over 20 years in what is sort of a very clear cut case of um, uh, corporate responsibility. So underlying it was not necessarily the facts of the case, but really about uh, whether or not contractors uh, under specific provisions can be held responsible. And so the um, this case looks at the fact that the world's largest military relies on a private uh, company, amongst others, to do its job, which is fighting wars. And so why is it, this is not usually about, you know, uh, weak states contracting for violence, which is usually the story that we hear about, you know, we hear about um, Sierra Leone or sort of other examples. Of course, now we hear about Mali, Central African Republic and, um, and Wagner Group. So similarly, it's this idea about, um, you know, strong states should not be contracting mercenaries. So why are they doing it? And in the U.S., of course, you know, there's this, this argument about um, the, we have uh, everything is becoming neoliberalized. And so uh, even, even defense thinks that it can be more efficient with private industry rather than public. Um, so there's sort of that argument. But there's also beyond just efficiency, which is debatable because oftentimes contractors are uh, ex-military, so they're still being paid pensions and you've still you know paid money training them so they're not necessarily cheaper or more cost effective um, but there is something about this idea of um, plausible deniability that you can get contractors to do things that you might not do in wars um, and so again it becomes rather than a story of oh, the world's biggest military is relying on private companies you know what does it mean about american might it means sovereignty might be declining it actually ends up becoming a story of that, you know, these contractors are helping um, the U.S. do more in wars, right? If they're able to avoid counting contractor debts, for example, in the same way we count um, other service uh, debts. Uh, they are, you know, usually uh, paid in ways where it's not obvious how much money is going to which contractor. There's a lot of subcontracting. So you can obfuscate the cost of war, both in human terms and in like human lives as well as in financial terms. Um, so that has to be politically convenient. And then in the conduct of wars, contractors don't have to really adhere to um, all the codes of conduct that, that service people have to. So similarly, they might be able to go and do things on behalf of governments that governments want some sort of hands-off approach from. And so all of this is telling us that this is really important for sovereign power, um, but that it creates these accountability gaps uh, and who is responsible when things go poorly. And in, similarly, in Blackwater, we had these huge public debates when things came to light that the U.S. is relying more and more contractors in Iraq. Um, and oftentimes these debates, I think, are basically how we start creating idealized sovereignty. 
it's not like idealized sovereignty just sort of sits there on its own um, and gets reified. Um, but it's because of these contests with usually forms of private power and private responsibility, just like with East India Company, that, that public power starts defining itself um, in more ways. And so with the Blackwater debates, you know, there were um, there was a lot of discussion about what it means for American responsibility abroad to have contractors running around killing people with impunity. And so they were kind of then redrawing what's public and private. Um, and then when we had Obama in power, he kind of froze some contract hiring. He kind of clarified what is an inherently government function um, that can be contracted out. And so these lines between, you know, what's idealized as sovereign public function um, sort of get redrawn over and over again uh, because of these contests in hybrid sovereignty. Um, and so Blackwater is kind of a case that is, you know, really familiar to folks, um, but there's still a lot of stories in there about the contests between public and private behind the scenes um, to, to try to hold this company responsible. Fascinating. Um, so how about the International Chamber of Commerce? How does that shed light on hybrid sovereignty? So the National Chamber of Commerce is um, this interesting example of a case that has existed for a long time, really under the radar. And so we hear about the World Economic Forum, you know, in Davos, when everybody flies there in January and Bono comes out and meets Bill Clinton and we get all these photos. Um, and we think that's where organized capital is. It's in these like meetings. But actually, a lot of the work of international commerce is done in boring forums in thinking about double taxation treaties or thinking about what goes inside a shipping container and you know what goes outside a shipping container. Um, how do banks route documents? Uh, what kind of systems do they use? All of these things and that are about uh, transactions, basically. Um, are done because other international uh, commercial institutions decide to honor certain rules and standards. And so the, so the National Chamber of Commerce started in 1919 um, as a way post-World War I in Europe for financiers and traders and merchants to come together and kind of help Europe um, get back on its feet. And uh, just like uh, the, the East India Company, it was public-private at birth because there were both ministers of finance and, um, and private industry folks who were involved. And initially the goal was to help figure out what's going to happen with German reparations. Uh, and then eventually the ICC started taking on more and more responsibilities. It started writing um, standards and codes of conduct uh, for the League of Nations. And um, they started calling themselves merchants of peace. And they wanted to really believe that uh, you know, free trade could save the world, could avoid another war. And they put a lot of really big European uh, names behind it. Um, and eventually, of course, there was another world war, so they couldn't stop it. Uh, but interestingly, the ICC, which was headquartered in Paris, uh, kind of kept uh, operating even during occupation. Um, so, you know, they could, they had to still send out their, um, their monthly country reports that people must know the price of grain, even if, you know, there are Nazis outside their door. Um, and so they survived World War II and, you know, they kind of really flourished in the post-war Bretton Woods era when we had the World Trade Organization. Uh, the, the sort of early forms of that were being debated. 
um, they had uh, the IMF, of course, and thinking about how um, they should respond to the rise of um, sort of global companies at that time. And um, the goal was to try to champion free trade everywhere. And so initially the ICC had sort of national chambers of commerce as their members. So each country had one national chamber of commerce represented in the ICC. And the goal was it was like a federation of these national chambers. But then over time, they shifted from focusing just on the national chambers of commerce uh, to individual corporations who could join as members. And so we had, you know, big Fortune 500 companies join the ICC and then try to lobby for certain kinds of rules of trade, certain kinds of services. Um, they wanted consulting done. They wanted uh, access to some data. And so now the ICC is probably much more of a um, corporate member service organization than a national chamber of commerce organization. But either way, they work on lobbying, they work on setting rules, they have a court of arbitration uh, that resolves disputes for commercial contracts, um, but also between investors and states. Um, so sort of like some of those, those big cases like Argentina against um, American investors were done in the ICC court. And um, it, to me, what's really interesting about it is the ICC thinks of itself as one of the old dame of international institutions. <laughs> So it like very proudly says that it was here before the UN system was here. You know, it's outlasted a lot of other um, sort of economic institutions and it's been around the block a few times and it knows a lot about global governance. Um, and it uses this as, um, as a way to have networked access. Um, and it says, look, like we have done this for a hundred years and we know how international, how, um, how these rules are made. Um, and importantly, they have become in some ways the preferred voice of business uh, to, to talk to governments. Um, so in the, early, in the early sort of climate discussions, the ICC was on the table talking about, you know, um, sort of interest of business against uh, climate protocols like, like Montreal um, or like the early sort of Earth summits. They were out there talking about a green charter. Um, they were doing, you know, a lot of work in these international forums um, because they had this institutional legacy. And so, um, again, a lot of times people might look at that and see, oh, international capital versus states, they are winning, you know, they're sort of co-opting. And there's certainly some of co-option or, or co-optation there, um, but they're also just helping international finance and trade happen. Uh, without a lot of the standards and the sort of dispute resolution and even some of the lobbying, uh, we wouldn't get, you know, $3 trillion worth of money moving around every day. Um, and so to the extent in which organizing markets is a sovereign function, the ICC really helps facilitate that. But again, it's unelected. We barely even know who's on these bodies. Um, you know, they are, sort of all the networks are part of are very exclusive, very elitist. Uh, including sort of all the international forums that they're in, like they get a seat at the table uh, at the UN, for instance, but then labor unions don't, and then and sort of environmental NGOs don't. So there's this sort of disparity between how certain voices get elevated uh, because of their networked relationships. And so the ICC is this case that is uh, sort of a quiet um, alternative to the World Economic Forum. It's not as flashy, doesn't get Bono to come to its events, but uh, it really helps run 
a lot of the underbelly of global uh, commerce and finance and not always in the most inclusive and democratic ways. So you end uh, your empirics with an examination of Amnesty International. Uh, can you tell us how that case uh, speaks to hybrid sovereignty? Yeah, so I think the book, as you read, in some ways gets a little weirder and weirder because it gets uh, more removed from what people think are sovereign debates. Um, so the East India Company and the Blackwater makes a lot of sense because they are directly talking about individual states. So there are battles between a company and like one recognizable government, so whether it's Britain for the East India Company or it's the U.S. for Blackwater. Uh, then with the with the, the ICC and Amnesty, we start moving away from individual state contests to the idea of the international community itself as a sovereign uh, club that needs to be protected. So the International Chamber of Commerce is sort of threatening the idea of states as a whole um, and whether or not they can regulate their national commerce and markets. Uh, and Amnesty is sort of challenging the idea of international rights um, and whether or not sort of states as a group um, have a monopoly on sort of rights. Um, and uh, so on, the, on one hand, amnesty is seen as challenging sovereignty because it's forcing states to do things they might not want to do on human rights. Uh, they're sort of naming and shaming them. Uh, they're making them change their domestic policies. Um, they're, you know, they're sort of creating some change in that way. Um, but I, I also think they're changing sovereign um debates because they are creating this universal um, community of people who are supposed to care about human rights. So when Amnesty came on the scene in 1961, it was not obvious that people should care about what happened to people in other countries to the extent that they are going to start writing like campaigns and, you know, asking for their release, adopting prisoners, um, you know, sort of holding rallies and like lobbying their governments to do something in other governments this idea of transnational advocacy uh, was just sort of coming about. Uh, of course, we saw a lot of this in the abolition movements in the 19th century, so it's not like this is the first time this has happened, but Amnesty really trying to generate a lot of momentum, not just about things like slavery, but about uh, like prisoners of conscience, uh, about forced, um, about torture and, uh, and, sort of, uh, and other activities that were happening to political prisoners. And it was doing it by saying, look, it, human rights is not just the prerogative of governments. Uh, we as civil society have a role to play in defining which rights matter and how. And at this time, even though we had signed, uh, you know, major sort of human rights things like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, governments were still very far behind in actually implementing anything um, to the extent where even in the UN Human Rights Committee, you were not able to name specific countries and call them as violators of human rights. So if you're not able to do that in the forum where it's supposed to be the mandate, then how are actual things going to happen? So Amnesty helped sort of come in and change that uh, through its reporting. It provided uh, metrics for what governments are doing. Uh, it had access to um, a lot of places where things were not going well, and it publicized that. And it had you know, access to like the early influencers, right? The early celebrities who were sort of jumping on board. And so Amnesty re re represents this case of creating a global polity um, to care about a sovereign function, which is protecting human rights, 
um, and saying that this is not just the role of governments, but the role of all of us. And in that way, uh, I think of itself as having sovereignty implications, not just in the way of implicating um, state sovereign uh, uh, choices um, on human rights. And in, importantly, the case also represents um, what happens when public and private interbingle in ways that we might not like. And so amnesty is also not just a human rights case in the book, but it's also the case of shadow hybridity. Um, and people always wonder in a book that includes Blackwater, why does the human rights organization get the shadow label? And it's because um, we might not be so surprised when Blackwater is out there dealing and dealing behind the scenes, but we should be surprised when Amnesty is doing that because it's an organization that prides itself on independence, um, prides itself on being um, just an expert, not really being political. And these are all things that are really important for its credibility uh, to be taken seriously. But I showed through the archives that, you know, in the early sort of uh, 20 years, the um, in order to survive, Amnesty had to rely on government funding, it had to rely on government deals for access. You can't just walk into Libya and go to the prisons and come out with it without knowing people inside the regime. And not just knowing people, but without making a few deals about what information you will publicize and what you will not. And so these are all things that had to be done for strategic reasons. They were not doing it just to make money, of course. They were doing it to survive as an organization. They were doing it so they could get stories out. Um, so this is not a normative judgment on, um, you know, look at them behaving in ways that we might not like, but it's really talking about the reality of doing this kind of advocacy work, um, where it's really hard to collect high quality data to get access and to publicize governments uh, that you are then asking for access, right? It's a very difficult decision. And so uh, it talks about how even in the, the case of an organization that needed to prove a public independence, you have public-private hybridity. Um, and when, when the stakes are very high for an organization to be found out. Um, and ultimately it talks about, um, you know, how Amnesty had to go through its own journey. And uh, this is only sort of looking at the past, um, you know, uh, again, the early 20, 25 years, because Amnesty Archives place a moratorium, uh, but we, we can't access anything in the last 30 years because there's a lot of sensitive material in there. Um, so there's nothing in there about how Amnesty currently operates uh, and whether or not they still make those deals. But at the very least, it helps show how something like an alternative to a state might come about, uh, where if we're thinking about global uh, polities, you know, global communities, they are also going to uh, form in these very politicized ways. There's not going to be idealistic ways in which people do politics outside of the state. Um, you know, there are ways to do it as a corporation. Uh, we've seen how that's going. But even in sort of civil society, um, ways of forming political attachment outside of the state is not always going to be, um, you know, idealistic and uncomplicated and clean. Um, things will get messy very quickly. Thank you for that. So I wonder if you could reflect on how the book helps us make sense of current events. Yeah, so um, I end the book by talking about um, big tech and Facebook, um, particularly because 
when I was finishing it, it was around sort of 2018, 2019. And this is when all the scandals about um, the election in 2016 came about and the role of Facebook in enabling access to the Trump campaigns um, and sort of um, voter data. And um, also there was a book called Surveillance Capitalism that came out in 2019 by Shoshana Zuboff, who talked about Google and Facebook's sort of global ambitions. Um, and so it became clear that there is something here about whether or not tech is the new East India company, right? Um, and today, of course, we see that much more in Starlink and how Elon Musk is operating in Ukraine, uh, where these uh, private individuals are given sort of sovereign privileges, um, either as uh, sort of a delegated thing in, in the case of Starlink, they're allowed to operate there. Um, and or as not delegated, just sort of assumed uh, in the case of Facebook and Google, where nobody told them to come in to our homes and give us devices. Uh, you know, they just sort of did it and assumed power. And hybrid sovereignty can look at this in sort of two ways. Um, one is that it's going to help, again, sovereign power be more effective. And so we already seeing that in terms of commercial surveillance. So it really helps governments um, that big tech companies are able to, uh, you know, basically have mass spyware on our phones and our homes, on our, on our platforms. Um, governments don't have incentives to regulate commercial surveillance because they benefit from that data. Um, we also know they benefit from online speech regulation, um, you know, basically YouTube uh, owned by Google and Facebook do a lot of work for governments um, censorship and online repression now. Um, so governments don't you know, even need to um, have their own teams. They just send requests to these companies for takedowns or censorship. Um, and so we have this ways in which tech is um, in service of you know, state power in the ways you think about it traditionally. But there's also this other hand of, it might be, but there are new forms of power emerging because of monopolies and especially the use of AI, where it's not clear if um, we can so easily say this is in, um, again, like uh, there's, there's always trade-offs. So it's going to help sovereign competence, but it might undermine sovereign authority. And that's sort of the key thing about public-private relations is that it might help you uh, conduct sovereign activities um, but then it might undermine the basis for why we gave you sovereign authority in the first place. And we are seeing this happen with tech, um, where it's possible that the use of technologies to bring people together, um, to sort of have them communicate with each other, to have them learn information, to have them, um, you know, uh, sort of enrich themselves by becoming more informed, by being better citizens, all of that might help us all but it might also lead to more divisions. It might lead to more loneliness. It might lead to um, more radicalization towards violence. Uh, and it might lead to us all becoming in some ways dumber because we are being fed diets of sort of addictive entertainment that are not for us to be um, critically engaged, but for us to stay on the platforms longer so more data can be collected about us. Um, and that tension is in some ways different from uh, any of the cases that I study in the book because the technology 
uh, is first more rapid than any change that we've seen from the East India Company um, or Blackwater, where they were just using sort of traditional ways of operating just elsewhere. Here, we're seeing companies that are not just using traditional tools of operating, they're inventing new tools of operating and they're, they're monopolizing those tools for commercial purposes. Um, and so that's concerning. Um, and secondly, it's they, I think for the first time, we have potentially a way in which the sovereign state itself might be surpassed by another form because we have now companies that are the wealthiest things that have ever existed in the world. Uh, Apple and Google and Amazon and Facebook um, have more money and more value than we've ever seen. Um, they have access to billions of people at the same time, which is more than companies have ever seen. Um, and they have governments in their pockets because governments want to invest in this technology and not be left behind. And so I think the book helps us think a little bit about uh, when we see uh, Elon in Ukraine or we see Facebook doing something in India, uh, we can see, oh, yes, hybrid sovereignty because it's public-private performance of sovereign power. But I think we should also be thinking about um, whether or not it's the end of sovereign states um, and if this is the beginning of that because it's the combination of monopoly power and new technologies. Um, and that it might be enough of a shock to the system where we might see something else in the next 100, 200 years. Great. So we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, I just have one final question for you. Um, you know, this book is obviously out in the world now. So what is it that you're working on? Yeah. And so it just builds on my last answer, and which is that I'm working on a book on tech um, and the power of big tech specifically. Uh, right now, I'm sort of calling it AI authorities. And um, the argument of the book is that uh, the use of AI by big tech corporations have made them both an authority, which is a resource used by other authorities like governments um, in the use of AI for governance tools, as well as it has made them in authority, which is the idea of private governance. And we've seen sort of big tech and Amazon taking on private governance roles. And I'm um, interested in incorporating not just traditional big tech like Google and Facebook that I was talking about, uh, but also OpenAI, Open Anthropic, all these other new emerging firms. And I think it's a sort of a natural evolution to thinking about, um, you know, the sort of tech power and how it, it implicates not just sovereignty, but democracy. Um, and so that I'm working on that book right now. And, um, you know, a lot of interesting debates are coming up about risk of AI and these companies. And I want to make sure that political science has a very strong voice um, in shaping those debates. That sounds like a fantastic project. And I hope you'll come back and talk to us about that book once it's out. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. The book is Swapi Srivastav's Hybrid Sovereignty in World Politics, published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. Thank you for listening.